a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? <laughs> Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir, go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We, we've got to stand firm in His truth. We've got to stand firm on His Word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me again in Bible study today. We're in the book of Romans, and we've reached verse 16 of chapter 1 of Romans. And now we're beginning to get into what some people consider to be the very heart of Romans already. It's amazing what God teaches us here. You may remember that it was verse 17 of this chapter, we'll look at it again in just a few minutes, that God used to get Martin Luther's attention and launch the entire Protestant Reformation. We're right there already. But as we work our way through the rest of this chapter you'll notice that the section that begins at verse 18 and then continues on through the end of the chapter, if you just read it, we're not going to read it today, but if you read the whole thing yourself, you'll think, wow, this sounds like 21st century America. And it does. It sounds like it were written 
for us in 21st century America. It's very, very sobering. And it's very, very blunt. Paul did not pull any punches here, and Lord willing, neither will we. We don't want to explain away any of God's really clear and plain truth. But we also need to be aware as we study it that there really are people today, and I'm talking about people who at least call themselves Christians. We assume they're Christians, but they don't like this passage. I think you'll understand why as we get into it in some detail over the coming weeks. First, let's just read these three verses. That's as far as we'll get today that begin with verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul starts this by saying, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. The Greek word translated ashamed is used 11 times in the New Testament, and each one of those 11 times is translated the same way, ashamed, ashamed. Same word Jesus used when he said, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Ashamed. The word carries the idea of not wanting to be identified with somebody or something. Usually it includes feelings of maybe timidity or fear or maybe embarrassment. People can be ashamed when they think they might be rejected or might be teased or maybe ridiculed or mocked or maybe falsely accused because they're identified with some other person or some group of people or some idea or some belief. Well, Paul boldly says right here, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, let me ask you a really tough question. I want you to struggle with this a little bit. Try to be honest before God. You don't have to say anything to me, but you have to be honest with God, right? He knows anyway. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were at least tempted not to share the gospel or not to talk about Jesus because you had a pretty strong hunch that it wouldn't be received very well, <laughs> that whoever you're thinking about sharing it with wouldn't receive it. I think most of us have had to deal with that temptation, don't you? Why? Why is that hard for us? Well, we don't like being rejected, do we? If we think we might be rejected, I don't like that. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to turn people off. We don't want them to think that we might be some kind of religious nut. <laughs> so we're tempted just to kind of keep quiet. It's hard to imagine Paul being like that, isn't it? Just tempted to be quiet, <laughs> to be ashamed. If he ever was tempted that way, I suspect he was. He was human, but boy, he had long since learned how to overcome that temptation, hadn't he? God had enabled Paul to conquer those fears many, many years before he wrote these words. That doesn't mean that everybody received his message with delight. Of course, you know better. I mean, he faced horrible rejection. You talk about rejection, we're afraid of somebody just rolling their eyes at us. Oh, no, 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 no. He'd been run out of town. <laughs> He'd been beaten. 
He'd been called a troublemaker by people that he loved. He'd been thrown in jail. He'd been stoned. He was abandoned. You name it. Still, he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Now, now please stay with me here. Listen very carefully all the way through this. We're praying for revival in our church right now. We should be. No matter what church you're in, that'd be a good prayer, right? All the time. We're also praying for revival in our nation, and we should be, right? But listen, barring a supernatural, wonderful, spiritual awakening in America, and we're praying that it'll happen. I'm praying for it. But let's be honest. So far, we don't see much sign of it, do we? I mean, do we really? I mean, maybe a little here and there. But increasingly, I believe we're going to see more and more open animosity and open hostility toward Christians in America. I believe that's what we're dealing with right now, and I think it's probably going to get worse. Now, when I'm talking about Christians in America, I'm talking about true Christians, real Christians who are willing to stand firm in God's truth and stand firm in God's word and not compromise with the temptations to compromise with the world. That's really strong right now. Even in the Southern Baptist Convention, we're having to deal with that in a big time way. If we're going to stand firm in this evil day we're facing, we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know the Bible is certainly God's word and we need to know what it says. We don't need to try to fix it to make it mean what we want it to mean. We need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to pray in advance that when the time comes for us to be tempted to be quiet, to be tempted to be ashamed, that we will say with Paul, I am not ashamed of this gospel. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to speak up. And of course, the gospel is what Paul says he's not ashamed of. The gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. I'm sure you're familiar with the word gospel. Greek word is euangelion, literally means good news. We've talked about it before. In the New Testament, it always refers to the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus has come into the world, and he never once yielded to our enemy, Satan. He never gave up. He never sinned. And eventually, he gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Then he conquered sin. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. And that means he overthrew Satan's kingdom. He conquered sin and hell and the grave. And he offers us forgiveness of sins if we will simply trust him. He offers us his own righteousness. Very important. He offers us his salvation. And he offers it as a gift if we will simply confess our sins and trust him as Lord of our lives. And so Paul says, that's why I'm not ashamed of it. Because of what it is. And because it's powerful. It's the power of God to salvation, he says both to pagans and Jews. And they may ridicule Paul, but for anyone, pagan or Jew, who will take long enough to listen and receive the truth, it's incredibly powerful. Whether they ridicule him or not, it's powerful if they will just listen. It can change their lives forever. It will save them from the horrific consequences of their sins. Sin always leads to death and pain and destruction. A little bit later in this book, Paul wrote, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stay with me here now. There's a temptation for us to see verses 16 and 17 as a unit that's totally separated from verse 18. You notice we read all three verses at the beginning. There's a reason for that. There's a temptation to separate them, do 16 and 17, and then later on do 18. But I think it's important to consider them together. Did you notice that all three of these verses start with the word for? Did you pick that up? 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, Paul's not done. But but what I'm trying to get us to see right now is each of these statements is a logical conclusion based on the next verse. For means because. He says what he says here because of what he's going to say next. Paul does this as he proceeds through this chapter. He also does it throughout the book of Romans. Paul presents a spirit-inspired logical argument. Very, very powerful. Paul is a spirit-inspired genius for presenting powerful arguments. I don't know if this is really true or not, but Francis Schaeffer once said that Romans used to be studied in American law schools in order to teach students the art of presenting an argument. They, they made the, the, the aspiring young attorneys learn from Romans how to present an argument because spirit-inspired Paul was such a master of it. Whether it's true or not that they use Romans in the law school, certainly we'll agree as we read through this book, this Paul was a master of, of spirit-inspired argument. It was incredible. Maybe it would help us to see how that works if we reverse these statements and use the words so that, kind of as another way to help us connect these ideas. Let's try that. Working backward then, we start from verse 18 in this case. God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness. So that... God gives us the righteousness of Christ as a gift in order to enable us to escape that wrath of verse 18. You see what he, see how that works? So that the gospel is obviously very powerful, as he tells us in verse 16, so that we should never be ashamed of it, verse 16. So putting it back in Paul's orders, we could use the word because instead of for. Verse 15, Paul told them he was eager to preach the gospel to them. We saw that last week. Paul's eager to preach the gospel in Rome because... Because he's not ashamed of it. Why is he not ashamed of it? Because it's powerful. Why is it powerful? Because by faith it brings us to the gift of righteousness that saves us. Why is that important? Because God's wrath is against all unrighteousness. You see the argument going through here? He, he carries that on all the way through the book. In verse 17, Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed in us. It's the gift of righteousness that we receive at salvation. Only way we can become righteous. The only way to get God's righteousness is as a gift. And it's from faith to faith. He's reminding us that we receive Christ's righteousness by faith. And we continue in his righteousness by faith. We are saved by faith. We walk by faith. We live our lives by faith. You remember to the Ephesians, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a gift from God, and the faith that leads to salvation is also a gift from God. And throughout our lives, God keeps giving us this gift. That's what grace is all about. By grace, he's giving us this gift of faith by which we receive this gift of righteousness that he also gives us. It's all a gift. It's all God's grace. This is a lifelong process from faith to faith, from new birth faith, when we first become Christians, to dying faith, from that initial salvation faith to walking in faith and living in faith and eventually moving on into eternity in faith. It's a lifelong walk of faith by grace. It's all by grace. It's all God's gift. Now, I'm 
sure you probably noticed that the ESV that I've got on the screen doesn't translate it from faith to faith. It translates it from faith for faith. And I probably ought to say a word about that. The preposition used here is the Greek word ice. And I think most translations translate it to in this verse from faith to faith. But the ESV translates it for. Ice is usually translated by the word into. I-N-T-O, into. But it's also translated to or unto or for, like the ESV did, or in or on or toward. So there's several different ways it can be translated, and it depends a little bit on the context. But I think what the ESV is trying to do here is bring out the idea that the righteousness of Christ is from faith, and the righteousness of Christ is for faith, in the sense that it produces more faith. But I think its most natural and most common meaning carries the idea of movement to something, movement into something. That's why it's usually translated into so the point here would be, the idea seems to be that from beginning with faith and from that faith leading on into even more faith. I think that's what he's saying here. Now look again at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The Greek word for wrath is orge. It's used 36 times in the New Testament. 31 of those times it's translated the way it is here, wrath. It's almost always translated wrath. And it refers simply to God's righteous anger and judgment against rebellious, unrepentant, sinful men. It's very common for people today not to want to hear about the wrath of God. (laughs) They just don't like it. And because of that... It's very common for many, many preachers and teachers to rarely, if ever, mention it at all. They don't want to talk about it because people don't want to hear about it. But the Bible, listen guys, stay with me. The Bible clearly teaches that one of the characteristics of God is his wrath against unrepentant sin. God's wrath is part of his righteous character. In Romans chapter 2, the next chapter we'll get to one of these days, Paul wrote, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, see there's lack of repentance there, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath is part of his righteousness. The ultimate reason that God finally does pour out his wrath is the rejection of his son Jesus. Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son, talking about himself, has eternal life. That's us if you've trusted Jesus. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But look, the wrath of God remains on him. That's all that's left. So don't think of God's wrath as being something capricious or unrighteous. The truth is it's necessary for his righteous judgment of the world. Romans 3, verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is God unrighteous because he's a God of wrath? He said, I'm speaking in a human way. Because he said, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? No, the wrath is a necessary part of God's nature. 
The necessity for the righteous judgment of God makes God's wrath a necessary part of his righteousness, his nature. Now, God knew that we'd struggle with this, and he knew some people wouldn't want to hear it. So he gave us lots of opportunity to understand it a little better. For example, Jesus taught a parable that I think will help us appreciate the significance of the wrath of God. I think that's why he taught this parable. Listen, hear another parable, he said. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So these people could see the need for God's wrath here. You see what I, I mean? That's a pretty powerful illustration. And of course, Jesus is alluding to the prophets that God sent who were treated horribly. And finally, he sent his own son, Jesus himself. There's another parable in the scripture that helps understand the importance of God's wrath. You know, we, we see it when we hear things like this, don't we? We see it. this is wrath's important. <laughs> Nathan helped David see it. You remember when David sinned against God, his sin with Bathsheba? And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. You remember the rest of the story. But because of this parable, David saw the need for God's wrath against David's own sin. Now, David repented. He didn't stay unrepentant. He didn't try to justify his sin. He didn't try to say, well, it's just the way I am. It's just who I am, Nathan. No, he didn't do that. He repented with, with deep, heartfelt repentance. Why is a man after God's own heart? And God spared him much of that wrath. But David certainly did suffer what we might call consequential wrath. He, the consequences of that sin were with him till his dying day. There are other real-life illustrations, I think, that can help us realize the need for the wrath of God. I'm going to tell you about somebody. Guess who I'm talking about right now? Okay, think about this historically. There was a certain man, and I'm talking about, I'm not telling you a story now, a real live man, not fiction, and he was raised up to power in a nation that had found itself in a very difficult situation economically. Many of the people thought he would be the one to bring them out of their financial misery, that he could 
but lift them back up again. He had a lot of great ideas, and he could lead them to greatness again. So they gave him great power and authority, which he gladly took upon himself. But as time went on, he began to see large groups of people as threats to his power and to his goals and what he wanted to accomplish. And so he decided that because he perceived they were a threat to him, he felt like they have to go. They were threatening. He felt the entire nation as far as he was concerned. They were therefore unworthy of living. And so he systematically and brutally began to put them to death. And before it was all over, he was responsible for the horrific deaths of literally tens of millions of innocent people. Who do you think I'm talking about? Well, if you're on your toes, you're probably saying, hey, that could be several different people. Yeah, it could be. Adolf Hitler comes to mind pretty quickly, doesn't he? Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and maybe a slightly few millions of people killed, but men like Pol Pot and Idi Amin, maybe the North Korean leaders, many, many dictators have behaved in this way. Now, I'm going to ask you this. Do you think there's a need for justice for men like these, or should they just get off? No big deal. Well, of course there's a need for justice, and that justice is coming in the form of the wrath of God. There are rebellious, unrepentant people in this world who simply refuse God's offer of salvation. And when God withholds his blessings from those people, people who reject his son, Jesus, all that's left for them is his wrath. Let me try another thought experiment that might help here. Imagine, picture in your mind, this is just a made-up story now, that there are two men. One of the men is older. He's a very kind man. He's very loving man. And he's a very wealthy man. The other man is younger and impoverished, has nothing. Suppose the older man were to take pity on the younger man and take him in. And the older man lavishes generosity on this younger man. He provides him the means to have many, many blessings, many of the good things of life. And the truth is, this younger man who is now really enjoying life, but he owes everything he has, everything he is, to the generosity of the older man. Now, suppose the older man simply says to the younger man, all I ask is that you show me some gratitude, show me some appreciation, Show me some love. And suppose the younger man refuses. The younger man says, hey, wait a minute. I achieved all this on my own. And he doesn't give any thanks or love to the older man. He basically ignores the older man. Would it be just for the older man to say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to withdraw these blessings. No, of course it's just. And it's right, isn't it? I think you'd agree with that. Listen, to the extent that any of us enjoy any comfort or any blessing, it's because God is good. Jesus said he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good. He blesses all people. We're all made in his image and he pours out blessings on us. But in spite of that, there are people who reject him. They're fools. They think they're responsible for their own blessings. They're arrogant fools. And so when God just withdraws his hand of blessing and releases his righteous anger against, against rebellion against him, well, it leads to pain and darkness and destruction, the wrath of God. 
One reason that some people struggle with the truth about the wrath of God is that we've allowed ourselves to be deceived. We're deceived about how deadly and how horrific and how destructive sin really is. We have convinced ourselves that at least in our case, it's really no big deal. It's understandable. We can rationalize it. We can excuse it. And we can convince ourselves it's minor. Do you remember before Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, there was no death, right? There was no sickness. There was no, there had been no sin. None of the consequences of sin. If you remember, even the animals lived in harmony. But after Adam sinned, everything changed. A curse came on the whole universe. Everything started dying. Animals were changed into predators and prey. Sin led to a violent, pain-filled, death-filled world, and we've been living in it ever since. Now listen, God wasn't caught off guard by Adam's sin. God knew exactly what would happen. And of course, God had the solution all along. God's solution to this horrific sin problem is, of course, Jesus and his death for us on the cross. He took that curse on himself. So by trusting Jesus, we can be set free from the curse. And we can be made fit to have eventually these eternal, incorruptible bodies that Jesus returned. And when Jesus comes back, Satan's going to be bound and Jesus is going to reign in, in a brand new kingdom that will remind us of Eden because the curse will be lifted. The Bible says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. It's going to be an awesome place. But those who refuse God's solution, those who choose sin and rationalize it and try to call it good and say this is what we want to do, this is what we should be able to do, and they reject Christ, they're going to have all God's blessings removed. And all that's going to be left is the wrath of God against sin and those who live in it. We all, I'm sure you agree with this too, despise unjust human judges. If someone is a judge, we want him to be righteous and just. For example, if we knew someone was guilty of murder or any other crime, assault and battery, robbery, and a human judge simply let him go free, we would be indignant. We would be shocked. We would be furious. We'd say, get rid of that judge. We want a judge to be just. Can't you see? We want God to be just too. God is more just than any human judge could ever be. He's perfect in justice. And that's the kind of God he is. And that's the kind of God we want him to be. But the problem we have to watch out for is our messed up thinking that our particular sins are actually minor. That our particular sins are kind of trivial. But if we could see sin from God's perspective, we would realize no sin is trivial to God. No sin is minor to God. All sin is an assault on God. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin is a statement that I'm rejecting God's truth. At the moment of that sin, I'm saying, I'll be my own God. Thank you, little G God. So it's right that as verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By the way, the word translated ungodliness here means an absence of reverence toward God, a refusal to honor him or worship him as God. The word unrighteousness implies unjust and sinful. So Paul's telling us here that ungodly, sinful men, men who do not want to acknowledge the glory and power and holiness of God, are guilty of suppressing the truth. They're holding back the truth. They're trying to cover up the truth. They don't want to see the truth. They don't want to think about the truth. They don't want other people to see the truth. They try to suppress it. 
Now, please remember what I'm about to say next. Okay, lean forward. Stay with me because the world really wants to muddy this up. Listen, truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Do you hear me? Truth is what corresponds to reality. I do not get to decide what's true for me. Something is either true or it's false. If it's true for you, it's true for me. But people who are in rebellion against God don't like that. They don't like the truth. But listen, God's all about the truth. You remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17? This is the night before his crucifixion. He prays this longest prayer we have recorded in Scripture. And he asked his Father to sanctify them, which means make them holy, set them apart in the truth. Your word, Jesus said, is truth. Just a few minutes before that, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. During that same evening, three different times, he referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. John 14, 17, John 15, 26, and John 16, 13. The Spirit of truth. God's big on the truth. On another occasion, Jesus said, if you will abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. In his word, God called himself the God of truth. Three different times. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Psalm 31, 5. Isaiah 65, 16. God says, I'm a God of truth. So in the Bible, God reveals to us truth. Truth about himself. Truth about Jesus. Truth about the creation. Truth about us. Truth about sin. Truth about repentance. Truth about faith. Truth about God's purpose. Truth about last things. And ungodly, unrighteous men don't like it. So they suppress it. They try to hide it. They try to cover it up. So one thing we as Christians must be very alert to as followers of Jesus is when others are suppressing the truth. As we work our way through this passage, we're going to learn learn a lot more about this problem of suppressing the truth in the coming weeks. But I'm telling you, we have to stay alert. People who suppress the truth sometimes are very slick. They may have a lot of degrees, Ph.D. degrees after their names. They may have a lot of Twitter followers. They may sound very sophisticated. They may use lots of difficult vocabulary words. They may have a wonderful smile. They may act very sweet and very kind and very loving. They may even call themselves Christian. But we must not be deceived by a thin veneer of polish, guys. Ungodly, unrighteous men, even if they look sophisticated and cool, are suppressing God's truth. We need to pray that God would give us the ability to see that problem and recognize it quickly. Well, Paul has a lot more to say in these verses, and it's very strong, and it certainly relates to America in 2021. And God willing, we'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these powerful words. We want to absorb absorb these words into our hearts and minds and lives. Lord, we certainly don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. We want to be like Paul, not be ashamed of the gospel because it's powerful. It's your power to salvation, to anyone who will believe, Jew, Greek, anybody in the whole world who will believe. 
Because in that gospel is revealed your righteousness from faith to faith. It's amazing. And thank you, Lord, that we need this gospel. We need this salvation. We need this righteousness because your wrath is very real and very just and very righteous and very good in the long run. We thank you for your wrath. We want you to be a God of wrath. We want you to be just. But, Lord, we also realize that your wrath is a thing to be feared. And we pray that you'd help us to communicate with other people that your wrath is real. And they need to be serious. You're serious about sin. And so do we need to be. So help us, Lord, to internalize these things. And not listen to the world so much, but listen to you and learn from your truth and stand in your truth and live by your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit working through us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.